This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's been a busy week for federal contractors trying to keep up with the details of the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. Contractors now have a new deadline to comply, and at the same time, the administration indicated it would approach the mandate with a little bit of flexibility. Meantime, nearly 20 states have sued the administration over the mandate. What a mess. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now to walk us through the latest, and they have really got a hairball here. Let's start with a new deadline for contractors to comply with the vaccine mandate. Why do they push it back? Well, the reasoning that we're getting from the White House about the new January 4th deadline for federal contractors to comply is that it just simply makes things easier. And that's because the administration uh, just yesterday issued the emergency temporary standard through OSHA for employers who have at least 100 employees or, or more. And so the OSHA standard sets a January 4th deadline. There's also a January 4th deadline if you work at certain healthcare facilities, basically through Medicare or Medicaid. And so the administration says, well, maybe we should just make one deadline for everyone, considering some companies, because again, the contractor mandate applies to those who uh, work in connection with covered contracts here. If your company is large enough, you might technically be dealing with multiple vaccine policies here. And so Maybe one date will make things just slightly easier. What the administration has not said, and we'll get into this a little bit more, Tom, is, you know, it's perhaps responding to some, you know, concern and worry out there from industry who are trying to comply. Or, you know, we hear that many of them are trying to comply, but it's it's difficult. Right. And I guess the government or the administration is looking at contractors kind of from two angles. One, as large entities that come under the OSHA mandate and the rules for all big employers. And as contractors, they can be people who are supplying people to federal sites. So there's kind of two angles on the way they're looking at contractors coming and going. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, just from a compliance standpoint, I don't think industry or government contracts attorneys who look at these kinds of things have ever seen a regulation like this before. And so it is difficult for them to set up structures to comply. And that is what the administration is after, is that these companies are establishing policies and they're trying to comply. Now, as you've reported, 20 states have circled their covered workplaces and challenged the contractor mandate. So we're looking at at least 20 states. There may be more at this point who have sued the Biden administration over this contractor mandate. You know, just looking at a couple of the big ones, one lawsuit that we're following that we think is significant includes 10 states. And that one was filed in a federal district court in Missouri. There's another group of states that have also filed similar lawsuits, and that went to a federal district court in Georgia. Texas and Florida have each filed their own lawsuits individually. I took a look at the Missouri lawsuit specifically because it does actually challenge the president's authority under the Federal Property and Administrative Services Act to regulate procurement in this particular way that they're trying to do with this vaccine mandate. Now, some of the attorneys that I spoke to about some of these cases, they didn't really see much of a path for this particular argument. The Missouri case includes a total of 12 arguments. So they're not saying that there isn't one of those arguments that might you know, fly here, but they didn't see a lot of weight with some of the 
procurement and the Administrative Procedure Act arguments that this lawsuit makes. Yeah, so they have a lot of arguments. It's like throwing jello at the wall to see which blob sticks, basically. Right. I I mean, that's certainly the case with some of these big lawsuits involving multiple states. Just to get into it a little bit more, Tom, you know, the Missouri plaintiffs, they say that the government violated other procurement policy laws, including the APA, because you know, from their perspective, they didn't give stakeholders a notice and comment period. The Administrative Procedures Act. Yes. And they also argue that OMB failed to consider the costs of implementing a mandate like this. They believe that, you know, private sector companies will see a number of employees potentially leave over this mandate. And if you don't have employees on the job, then your contracting isn't economical or efficient, which is ultimately what everyone is after here. That's their argument anyway. Um, I'll just quickly note, Tom, you know, OMB responded to some of these lawsuits, not to anyone in particular. And they say that the president has authority to promote efficiency in federal contracting in this way and reminds, you know, that the Justice Department and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission have already said that COVID vaccines can be mandated. And Nicole, you wrote earlier this week about one legal argument the states have not yet incorporated into their challenges. So what's this novel idea? So I'll say, Tom, you know, we haven't seen every single lawsuit. And so there is a possibility that someone has made this argument. But generally, in talking to three attorneys about this, um, there was a bit of consensus about an argument that they're not seeing made. And that is the method that the administration is using to implement these new contract requirements. And that's ultimately through the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force website. And as we've reported and as we try to track pretty regularly, the guidance on that website changes frequently, sometimes multiple times a week. Sometimes for federal employees, I mean, they were getting updates very frequently. Yes, I'm looking at the site right now, and under the What's New page, there's November 1st guidance, October 29th, October 21st, October 4th. You know, that's almost every week. Right. And so under the federal contractor executive order that mandated vaccines, agencies are supposed to embed uh, deviation clauses from the Federal Acquisition Council and those you know, have been out at this point into their contracts. Those contracts tell companies to essentially refer to guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. But if that guidance changes and evolves so frequently as it has, at least recently, the question is is whether or not that's a problem. Um, And some attorneys say, you know, quite honestly, maybe somebody should make this argument. I think at the same time, I mean, the Professional Services Council was on your show earlier this week, and they talked about how it has really been difficult to comply with a website that changes very frequently. Yeah, definitely a moving target. And in looking at the reporting you have done both for contractors and on the federal employee mandate side, and looking at some of the reporting that Scott Massioni has done with respect to the military mandate, all of this argument and all of this sturm and drang seems to be concentrated about a very small percentage of people. I mean, most contractor employees are getting the vaccine. Most, more than 90 percent of military members are going ahead and getting it. A lot of the centers on a few people. I don't think we know yet specifically to answer that question definitively. Certainly what Scott has been reporting from the military, the military is really the only government entity that is providing numbers. numbers. 
essentially. We have not seen such detailed reports from other agencies. The VA has has offered up some in, in past weeks and months, but notably hasn't given an update anytime, you know, after their own deadline to comply with this mandate passed. I think they're quite honestly still trying to pull that together so that they have an accurate picture, which I believe is fair. But I mean, based on what we're seeing from the military, I think your statement is is true. I think, yes, you bring out a good point here that data is hard to come by because I asked earlier this week Jason Miller, the deputy director for management at OMB, what is the percentage now that is teleworking? And he said, we really don't know. We knew it reached a high of whatever, 59% of eligible people or 59% of the workforce at the peak, but nobody knows what it is now. Yeah. And one thing I'll mention, Tom, is on the contracting side specifically, I'm not talking about federal employees, but on contractors, we have seen the administration make some statements that suggest a bit more flexibility here. I mean, just on Monday, the task force updated their guidance and said that contractors had to make a good faith effort to comply with the vaccine mandate. And when I asked OMB a little bit more about that, they essentially said that contractors have to show that they have a vaccine policy, that they've communicated that policy to their employees, and that they're trying to comply. I don't necessarily know that we'll see scenarios where five employees at one contracting company have are not fully vaccinated by this now January 4th deadline, and therefore their contract is canceled. I don't think that's the scenario that we're going to enter here. That's maybe why we saw some of that language from the administration that tried to bring the temperature down a little bit. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out all of our stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it 
so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, – his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. 
And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.